Hello and welcome to Romaniacs, now officially the podcast of the post-Brexit resistance. After supping their fill of freedom and sovereignty last week, the crowds have dispersed from Westminster. Last week, 1,315 days after the referendum, following on from their NAF coin and NAF tea towels, the government put on a NAF light show to mark mark our NAF exit. We are still here to see you through the ups and downs of the transition. I'm Dorian Linsky. It's a big week for us. Joining me for it are a couple of our regulars. The learned gentleman to my right is Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk, and no stranger to chuntering from a sedentary position. (laughs) (laughs) Ian, do you have a favourite standing order? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't want to be fashionable, but it is standing order 24. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm quite cutting edge on my standing order preferences. Yeah. It's like the Beatles, isn't it? It's, just, it's, it's obvious, but it's also the best. So, And the Honourable Lady on my left is Ros Taylor, editor of LSE Brexit. Hello. Hi, Ros. Uh, Ian's method of self-care on Friday night was booze and cheese. Um, how did you, did you mark our last evening of the year, or did you do as I did and completely ignore it? I tried to. I've been very sad all day. I was wandering around just kind of crying randomly. That was embarrassing, especially at school pickup. And then, and then I, I decided to go to bed early um, so that I wouldn't have to, you know, I, I wouldn't be tempted to go on Twitter or anything like that. So I went to bed early. And then at 11 o'clock, I was woken up by the sound of fireworks, which some fuckers had, 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 had been letting off over North London of all places. And I was so angry then that I immediately went on Twitter and just got furious. <laughs> I was um, doing fine until I saw the, the led by donkeys. Ah. Uh, White Cliffs of Dover thing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm. damn you. <laughs> you made me cry. <laughs> With us today is a man who held the rare talent of making the last four years tolerable and even entertaining through sheer force of upholding parliamentary sovereignty. (laughs) This time last year, he broke with Commons tradition by allowing a vote on the Grief Amendment. He also denied the May government its third vote on her deal. He's called Brexit the biggest mistake since the Second World War, which we like a lot. And his autobiography, Unspeakable, is published this week, where he gives his verdict on the four prime ministers who governed on his watch, among others, and tells us what really went on in the parliamentary battles of the Brexit years. I guess this week is former Speaker of the House of Commons, the maestro of Erskine May, John Burker. Hello, John. Welcome. Hi, good afternoon to you, and thank you for having me on your programme, on your podcast. How are you How are you enjoying life outside outside the Commons? Do you do you feel the urge to, 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 to sort of tell people off in civilian life? <laughs> no. <laughs> to silence their chuntering? No, I've not used the word chuntering from a sedentary position with anything like the same frequency over the last three months <laughs> as I had in the previous... 10 years. So, no, I'm enjoying life. I'm trying to earn a living, have some fun and in due course possibly do some good. And what I mean by the latter is that I can imagine undertaking some charitable activities in the future, but I haven't finally decided on any one particular cause, but I'm very interested in the whole issue of social mobility and corporate social responsibility and so on. But basically I'm making a living by communicating with business audiences. I am enjoying doing a bit of lecturing at Royal Holloway College London University which is fun I'm Chancellor of my old university Essex University which is an honorary position it's not a paid position but it's a great honour spending a bit more time with my family and indulging my passion for sport specifically tennis and football well presuming that your publicist hadn't cunningly staged this on the way into the studio there were two strangers who just sort of came up and said hello and thanked you for what you were doing and and this you know you became kind of the star of the the parliament channel last year and it, it gave a kind of conferred a kind of celebrity that the speaker doesn't n- normally enjoy um 
Has, has that generally been a, and obviously the, you know, celebrities sort of has uh, has two sides to it. Has it generally been a kind of benign experience for you? Have you sort of enjoyed um, the attention of strangers, memes and so on? Yes, if truth be told, I have. I'm not even sure that I would call it a benign phenomenon. I mean, it's been very positive and uplifting from my point of view. Look, I don't make the mistake of thinking that it is proof of huge public popularity, because I think the truth of the matter is, and I think I said this to Ian when we met recently, it's self-selecting. The people who come up to you and express enthusiasm or say, well done, or I'd like to say thank you for your service, and it does happen a lot in London. It happens every day without fail. I don't mean hundreds of people, but I mean a steady trickle every day when I'm out in public places. Those people are choosing to come and say hello and say thank you or we support you or we think you did a great job because they are supportive. There will be huge numbers of people who haven't got the foggiest idea who you are so they wouldn't <laughs> think of coming up to you and saying anything. And let's face it, there will be people who don't approve of me, who didn't think much of me as speaker or don't approve of my political views as they see them. And they're not, on the whole, with exceptions, going to come up and say anything. Why? Well, because most people don't want to cross the road to pick a fight. I mean, people have got their mm. own lives to lead and, you know, they probably don't want to have a fracas or an altercation. So they probably wouldn't. But as to the memes, I mean, the memes are quite fun. I am only very recently familiar with the idea of a meme or what my children described to me as a mashup. I didn't know what a mashup was other than a collection of potatoes prepared to accompany a dish. And I was astonished when I was first told about this, but I saw a number of memes. I saw a meme on my mobile phone of me saying, Mr. Peter Bone, Conservative Member of Parliament for Wellingborough, and somebody had done a meme or a mashup of me saying Mr. Peter Bone to the music of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. It was a member of the public who was presumably either not fully gainfully employed or had a bit of leisure time, and he thought it would be fun to do. So it had me saying, Mr. Peter Bone, 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 etc. And there's stuff on the internet, I think, of me sort of saying, Bambos Charalambus, and Thangum Debonair, two yeah. quite well-known Labour MPs with very distinctive names. So have I found it fun? Yes, I suppose, you know, I have to admit I have. I don't seek it. But I have found it stimulating, and to a degree, to a very modest degree, reassuring. I, I think I'm pretty robust, but you do get a lot of criticism and abuse, and you know that goes with the turf of being a public figure, and I'm not complaining about that. But it's nice, obviously. Mm. It's human nature to want to have some approval rating. It's nice when people come up and say, well, and what have they said? Thank you, well done, we think you did a great job. And some of them tend to focus on very simple things like, you know, I enjoyed the way you kept order. But a lot of people in London in particular have said sort of thank you for standing up for parliamentary democracy. Thank you for mm. resisting the encroachment by the executive. Thank you for enabling MPs to speak their minds and vote in accordance with their conscience and not just rolling over mm. to the government of the day. Now, of course, that which makes me popular with some people makes me I absolutely accept, very unpopular with others. Well, we'll talk about that, that later. Before, just before we move on, I wanted to ask, how many reality TV offers have you turned down so far? <laughs> well, actually, not that many. I was asked about going on, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. As to 
Strictly Come Dancing, I haven't been approached to the best of my knowledge. I know at one time Judy Murray, who is well known to me and of whom I'm a big fan, was asked, because of course she went on the programme, who from the world of politics and broadcasting would you most like to see on Strictly? And she said, oh, John Burke and Jeremy Paxman. Well, to be fair to Judy, I think she probably said me because my name was probably the first politician's name that came into her mind. If Judy had even the faintest inkling of just how disastrously inadequate I am as a dancer, she might have revised <laughs> her ideas. I'm not sure she would have been champing at the bit to see me on if she observed my imitation of dancing. The truth of the matter is I've always enjoyed public speaking, but I loathe dancing. I completely understand why people love it, and if they're good at it or even if they're not good at it and they have fun. I have no sense of timing, and I resist in almost all circumstances being dragged onto the dance floor. I have been asked to go on Celebrity Mastermind, and I've turned that down. Why? You could do Erskine May, man. You could just nail it. <laughs> well, I don't think it's a question of I mean, the specialist subject. I'll tell you why. It's not a question of the specialist subject, because I think we could all choose a specialist subject. Actually, in my case, it probably wouldn't be parliamentary procedure. It would probably be the career of Roger Federer, you know, in which I'm steeped. And I think I could probably learn a couple of thousand facts about his background and career and track record and so on and perform more than adequately on that front. I think the real clincher is who's good at the general knowledge and I don't think I've got a particularly good general knowledge. So would I want to abase myself and perhaps even disgrace myself by doing really badly if I'm really honest about it I think I'd rather not fair enough I love fair the enough. idea that Erskine May was just something you dabbled in while you focused on your proper commitment to, <laughs> to Roger, Roger Federer <laughs> <laughs> oh well one has to have a sense of priorities <laughs> well we'll be hearing lots more from John and discussing the government turning up the aggression on trade talks with the EU we'll also talk about how Remainers should conduct themselves given that the fight is over or at least into a different phase that's after a few reminders from Roz. Two big things to your diary. There are still tickets available for a Maniacs Live in Liverpool on Saturday 15th of February at 2pm. Ian, producer Andrew and I will be joined by not one but two star guests. The great Professor Michael Duggan of the University of Liverpool, whose brilliant videos made sense of Brexit years before we did. And the Liverpool Echo's political editor, Liam Thorpe, who can tell us why the area voted to remain and what levelling up the North means in a city with little fondness for Boris Johnson. Tickets are on sale at ticketline.co.uk slash Romaniacs and Patreon people get a discount. See the post on your Patreon homepage. And if you're not in the Northwest, why not try our weekly companion podcast, The Bunker? It's like Romaniacs, but without the Brexit. This week's edition is out now and features Ian plus Helen Lewis at The Atlantic and our new best friend Arthur Snell, former British High Commissioner to Trinidad and Tobago, no less. They're talking about baby boomers, populism, Vladimir Putin and when it's right to kick someone off social media. The Bunker is out every Wednesday morning. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or get it on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the one with a yellow background and a blue logo, not the one that's about golf. <laughs> oh, wow. Thanks, Roz. Important, important distinction. Very Although quiet. perhaps we should have more golf. No. No, we fucking shouldn't. <laughs> John wants tennis. <laughs> uh, we're losing control. Roz wants tennis. golf. No. Um, <laughs> as you've heard, our guest this week is former Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko. His autobiography, Unspeakable, will be out by the time you read this. John, I did enjoy uh, the memorably harsh lines about um, various former colleagues in Go the on. House. Are, are, are any of them going to be... 
I think the one I like, I particularly like the one about Michael Howard. Because some people are cold, others are oily. Michael's peculiar distinction was to combine coldness and oiliness in equal measure. And they're, they're well, I stand by that. There are more like that. I stand will, by that. Will I've any, had a lot of experience of them, and I don't think I'm alone in that category. Will any of the people uh, read that? Do you think anybody would be would be surprised to read them, or do you think that um, the people that you didn't get on with are well aware? Uh, I think on the whole they won't be surprised. I think for the most part they'll be well aware i mean i haven't spent any time thinking about that but would michael howard know that i didn't entertain warm opinions of him he would certainly know that and i think that some of the others in fact most of the others probably would as well david cameron and i have never been friends we always got on well when we played tennis for the commons and lords team together in the early noughties but after that it has to be said relations deteriorated rapidly and permanently. So, no, I don't think there'd be any great shock. None of them is likely to be surprised. I've had probably the fewest conversations with Theresa May and always very courteous conversations. She might be quite struck by the force of what I've said about her. But I do also say positive things about her. You know, I think she's a decent and public-spirited person. I think she's extremely hardworking. But I do stand by my wider verdict of her. And in particular, of political significance, I think that she suffered one huge and fatal flaw. And that was, apart from anything else, a complete lack of political imagination. You know, you would have thought that having gambled on the 2017 election and lost the gamble, it might have occurred to her, not necessarily to abandon Brexit, but to pursue a different approach, mm. perhaps a more nuanced or calibrated tack and to try to reach across the house to get support. But not only didn't she do so, my impression was that it never even occurred to her to do so. She just continued rather monotonously on the same path and behaved as though nothing had happened. And that seemed to me to be really very, very misguided and short-sighted and quite a serious flaw in a political leader. Well, you take, I mean, you know, it's, there's, there's some balance as well, but you, you take a... a on balance, a fairly dim view of most of the party leaders, and yet he praised many backbenchers, whether that's Stella Creasy, Sarah Williston, or Bill Cash, or you know, so it's across the kind of mm. political spectrum. Um, are you just? Is it just that you have a sort of natural empathy with backbenchers, particularly kind of rebellious ones, because yes. that's what you were? But do you also think there's there's a problem that that too much talent is is over there rather than in the leaderships? Is there something that's stopping these people? from becoming leaders? Well, I do naturally empathise with backbenchers. And I think if I'm really candid about it, I do naturally empathise with people who are a bit different, a bit awkward, a bit independent-minded, and a bit insistent on the remorseless pursuit of their causes. And I don't share Bill Cash's views on Europe, as is now very well known. I think Brexit is the biggest foreign policy blunder of the post-war period, which is going to be gravely damaging to the UK. But I can admire and respect somebody who has ploughed his originally lonely furrow with such persistence and assiduity over a very long period. I may be very opinionated, but I'm not a bigot. And I think it is bigoted only to admire people of your own views. I think we all ought to be able to think of people of whom we would say, well, I disagree with that person, but I respect her or him. And I do respect Bill. 
why didn't those people progress? You know, you're sort of saying, in a sense, were they just too talented to progress? No, I think the truth of the matter is that there was one or other factor involved. Either those people didn't progress because they weren't regarded as team players or they were thought to be too contrary or too stubborn or they didn't progress because they chose not to do so. You write candidly in in the book about being extremely right wing as as a young man and then uh, and there's a wonderful thing where your your rival for the post of the leader of the FCS is uh, is our friend Frank Mansoir. Mark Francois. <laughs> And um, you ended up being too liberal for for sort of for most Tories. And it makes me wonder that when people talk about, say, Jeremy Corbyn, Bernie Sanders, there is a huge kind of admiration for people that have basically had lifelong consistency. Yeah. Reading your book, I wonder, do you think that sort of that, that sort of changing your mind, that, that kind of reassessing your opinions and going on a journey is sort of an an underrated virtue. And I do. I mean, I think the merits of consistency are overrated. I think when I was a young man, I was rather attracted to people who were very consistent, or at least had been consistent on a subject for quite a long period. And I did tend to think, oh, this sh- shows principle, integrity, solidity, reliability, dependability, call it what you like. But I think that the merits of consistency are overstated i mean as keynes famously said if the facts or circumstances change i change my opinion what do you do and i think that it's more important to be right than to be consistent most people i mean this is a huge generalization dorian uh, rose ian but i suspect most people broadly do sit in the same place for most of their career if they're a politician or life if they're a member of civil society and not a politician but somebody with political views they probably do broadly speaking adhere to the same beliefs over a long period and i think it's human nature that most people judge these things on the basis of their own experience in other words because they've tended to stay in the same place they think that's what should be i think the important thing is to be true to oneself and to make judgments on the basis of the merit of the issues the idea that you should remain consistent so as to avoid being accused of inconsistency or unreliability is frankly ridiculous at the time by the way that i beat mark francois by 197 votes to i think 123 (laughs) in april 1986 i'm clutching those figures firmly to my breast and you can tell that it still means a great deal to me today i was very much on the radical right the thatcherite right mark francois was regarded at the time as the very embodiment of moderation i recognize that for you in this studio And for your listeners, this will be a supreme challenge to even the most vivid imagination, the notion of Marc Francois as a moderate, as a rather restrained and understated fellow, peddling a very middle-of-the-road Toryism. But at the time, Francois was the moderate and I was the radical right-winger. Uh, these days, as you know, uh, roles are reversed. Well, does that give you some insight? And he's pretty hard. Insight. There was this period, you're right, being ultra thatch right. You're a skeptic, even you know, much later than that. So, does that mean that you therefore have more of an insight than, for example, I don't know we do into the sort of the mindset of the Euro, of Euroskeptics of, of the Brexiters? I sort of struggle to, to you know, I don't share their values as such and such. But having been on that journey yourself, were you able to kind of? you know understand better their mindset 
I think I did, and even now I think I do understand their mindset. I was for a very long time, Dorian, as you sort of hint, to all intents and purposes, a Brexiteer. In other words, even after I'd shifted my attitudes mm. on other subjects, I'd become very socially liberal, I'd become a a keen supporter of LGBT equality, of special educational needs provision being enhanced, of constitutional reform. But I think pretty well up until 2005, either 2004 or 2005, I was a hardline Eurosceptic. I think I remember speaking in a debate in the Commons in something like 2004, in which I was still trotting out those hardline anti-EU messages. I came to believe over a period that when forced to identify particular examples of powers that we'd given up, that we absolutely had to have back, frankly, I couldn't find them. My overall take was, look, we're in an interdependent world. Most of the problems that we face are complex and multifaceted and they're not susceptible to simple solutions. And by and large, they're not going to be resolved or even significantly mitigated by one country acting alone. And what I think shifted me on Europe was partly becoming more liberal politically generally, if I'm honest, and listening to people with whom I shared other views being pro-European made me think, gosh, aren't my views on Europe perhaps a bit out of date or fossilised or just wrong? And partly, I think, uh, Michael Howard wouldn't approve of this, but becoming Shadow Secretary of State for International Development and serving in that role for just right. under a year as a result of him appointing me to that position caused me to think about not just development, but global issues, foreign policy, the approach to the resolution of some of the challenges around the world. And I started to think, well, actually, cooperating, working together makes a lot of sense. Michael Howard had a particular obsession with and absolutely unreconstructed opposition to the EU aid budget and impressed upon me as leader as he was the very great importance of me prioritising the pursuit of the repatriation of EU aid policy to the UK. And I was deeply unenthusiastic about doing that. Apart from anything else, I'd said to him, but Michael, it can't actually be done legally. It would require the agreement of the union for us to reclaim that power. And, I mean, he wasn't really inclined to let the facts get in the way of a good political argument. And it was a drum that he wanted me to bang. Did he have any interest in or detailed appreciation of aid policy more widely? No. no. On the referendum itself, there's a bit in the book where you talk about an attempt in 2011 to get a, a private member's bill to get the referendum on the, the yes. books, I think. Um, and then when it actually happened, you describe that, you know, Cameron... Uh, referendum is a massive, reckless, and disastrous gamble, which I think we we, we would agree with. But that earlier, I, I apologise for my understatement. But there was a but that early one made me wonder whether you thought that it could be postponed indefinitely. Do you do you feel that there had to be a referendum at some point, or do you would do you think no, you could have held fast, and the pressure would have gone away? No, I don't think there did have to be a referendum. I mean, I myself have not been consistent on the subject, not only in the sense that I used to be a supporter of Brexit mm. and now a very determined and inveterate opponent of it, but in the sense that I have in the past, I think, publicly voiced either support for or 
recognition of the possible merits of a referendum. But you asked me the very particular question, could the pressure have been resisted? And my answer is it absolutely could have been, because there was no great public clamour for a referendum. And the people clamouring for it were, on the one hand, UKIP, and on the other hand, Tory backbenchers who were Brexiteers. Now, David Cameron wanted to ward off the threat of UKIP and to assuage or pacify Tory Brexiteers on his own benches. Was it essential to call the referendum for that purpose? No. And I'll tell you something else. I don't actually think, I can't prove it, and you'd have to ask him, but I don't actually think David Cameron ever expected to have to fulfil the commitment to a referendum. Because, of course, if you look back, you'll recall that what he said was that a majority Conservative government mm. would stage an in the Lib Dems referendum. Would save I think he fully expected and hoped, yeah. I'd go so far as to say, and hoped that he'd remain in a coalition government because I always felt that David was both politically and temperamentally and in terms of personality very comfortable working with Nick Clegg and I thought well he would rather depend on Nick Clegg than on Bill Cash and John Redwood and I could almost hear him in a sense or visualise him saying well I hope my honourable friend will understand the particular pledge that I made and those are not the circumstances now we haven't got a majority government and therefore I have to disappoint my honourable friend and say that I'm not in a position to offer any such referendum and he would basically have blamed the Liberal Democrats Sadly. Once he got the majority yeah. I suppose he felt he had no choice but to stage the referendum and David was I'm afraid guilty of overconfidence he I think famously said somewhere that he would win and somebody said to him well how come or what makes you say that and he said well I always do Dave always wins. And he'd always in a sense, polled ahead of his party. So he probably thought that he would be able to hack it, to continue to fly by the seat of his balance and through his natural eloquence and get his way. But he rode his luck and eventually he ran out of luck. And my biggest criticism of him, and he does have many gifts, I admit, but my biggest criticism of him is that given a choice between tactics and strategy, he unerringly opted for the former tactics rather than the latter strategy to give you just another counterfactual obviously it was not your job to uh you know to try and stop or you know moderate brexit but you did obviously have a, a sort of front row seat to to other people's efforts to sort of do so and when we did leave the, the eu last week um there were many pundits sort of playing the counterfactual game and going, well, there was a, this chance was missed and that chance was missed. One of them, for example, was the, the indicative votes. And if the indicative votes had gone one way, then that could have opened up. Do you feel that there were turning points that you observed where if a few votes had gone the other way or if, if somebody's sort of tactics had been like, do you know what, if we just go for this softer version of Brexit, whatever, that it could have, uh, we could have ended up in a very different place. Do you think that those kind of those turning points that there were these places where it really did just turn on the decision of sort of a few MPs or is that too neat? I think there is something in that. I mean, to be fair, as far as the votes on the referendum were concerned, the referendum supporters were quite a long way short of having a majority in the House. If memory serves me correctly, they might have got up to 273 or at a stretch 276 supporting a referendum. They never had 
anything very close to a majority of the House of those, in a sense, eligible to vote, which would have meant them having, in practice, given Sinn Féin not taking part and the occupants of the chair not voting, it would have meant, in practice, them needing to have, let's say, 320 votes. They're always quite a long way short of that, Dorian. But, on the other hand, if supporters of another referendum had had a few more votes, then the vote for would have been bigger than the vote for any other Mm. of the sort of multiple choice options, if you like, in the indicative votes. And that might have triggered Mm. a referendum. I know that there was talk in the ether as late as last October of a sort of gravitational pull towards a referendum amongst some Conservative members who hadn't articulated it. Now, to this day, I don't know whether that's true. And even if it's true, I don't know how many were in that category. But if you ask me, do I think there was a point at which either a referendum could have happened or the House could have voted for a customs union Mm -hmm. approach to Brexit? The answer is yes. And I think that those missions narrowly failed. And by the way, I mean, you asked about whether a referendum was inevitable. You could equally ask, was an election inevitable? In my own personal view, an early general election was not inevitable. There's quite a widely held view that because of Brexit fatigue and because of public anger at the irresolution of Parliament on the subject of Brexit, we really had no choice but, in a sense, to segue into an early general election. I don't actually buy that. I think it would have been perfectly possible to continue the Parliament. In the end, for a variety of reasons, opposition parties, usually thinking of their own circumstances, decided to embrace the idea of an early election. And I think that that has proved to be, you know, not least from their point of view, and certainly from a Romaniac's point of view, a mistake. Well, you talk about fatigue there, and, and we had MPs coming in, and they really talked, particularly last year, about the kind of immense sort of strain and exhaustion, and, and obviously part of your agenda, you know, as Speaker, you know, obviously stand up for Parliament to reform in certain ways, um, and, and, and hopefully, of course, to make it a place that more people would, would want to enter. Um, were you very conscious? Was there any, Do you feel there was anything you could do for these kind of... Or, rather another way to put it is how much longer could it have gone on people having to sort of you know these constant crunch points and these constant late votes and people getting so much pressure from constituents and sometimes abuse because we there were certain people that it just i just thought like how much longer could this go on and in a way the election not very happy about it generally sort of allows some sort of normality to return to the commons Well, you know, it may be that I'm very heavily outnumbered in this opinion, but my own feeling is that it could have gone on indefinitely because the legal position, you may say, ah, the law and politics are not the same thing, but the legal position was that the next general election was not due until 2022. But I mean, the human cost, like, did you you notice people fraying? Yes, I mean, I think I did. And I think that... I'm a huge supporter of my colleagues, as you know. I've often spoken up for Parliament. I don't share the view of so many of the naysayers and the detractors that the last Parliament was a disgrace and the House had lost all moral authority to sit. I don't accept any of that for one moment. And I'm not pejorative about my colleagues. I thought the last Parliament was a good Parliament and Parliament was doing its duty in questioning and probing and scrutinising and challenging and contradicting and exposing the errors of omission and commission of the executive branch. So I, I certainly wouldn't want to join the hue and cry against them. One thing, however, which is 
critical that I would say is that ultimately Brexit fatigue had something of the same impact on parliamentary colleagues as it probably did on members of the public. In other words, causing people to get a bit frazzled and irascible and perhaps short-tempered with each other. I think it was a bit like a war of attrition and colleagues probably also almost got bored with having to say the same things over and over and over again, arguments they'd made in speech mm. after speech after speech. But if the other lot were saying mm. their messages over and over and over again, then those people who were bored with doing so had to respond in kind. But in the process, people were probably less kind towards and tolerant yeah. of each other mm. towards the end of the parliament with notable exceptions i mean if you take somebody like hillary Benn, i mean hillary is virtually a saint and <laughs> seems to be incapable of getting very angry with yeah. anybody he's capable of getting angry about an issue and very passionate but he's never unkind or discourteous to anybody so i didn't witness it in him but i did with colleagues on both sides of the house and on both sides of the Brexit argument find that they got pretty fed up with each other. I have to ask, in the, in the book, you, you address and kind of rebut uh, allegations of bullying a couple of years ago. Obviously, this has resurfaced with, with, with uh, David Leakey. Um, what a where do you think these are coming from? Why why do these allegations sort of uh, keep coming up sometime after the fact? And and what are we to, what are we to make of them in relation to obviously this this sort of peerage issue? Why do they keep coming up? Uh, short answer is that there was a sprinkling of people in the house who were very accustomed not only to having their say, but to having their way, and who took umbrage at a speaker saying, no, we're going to do it differently. Now, for the most part, and this is the subject for a, quite a full discussion on another occasion, sure, potentially, sure. so I'm really just trying to summarise it, but for the most part, they were people who'd worked in the House or in another career of a rather structured kind for a very long time. So they were people that I would describe as institutionalised and they were very traditional and in some cases, frankly, plainly reactionary and accustomed to having their way because that was the natural order of things and to having their approach adopted and they didn't like it being challenged. And partly as a result of having perhaps served for a very long period, they'd come to be very comfortable with existing arrangements on which they found it difficult to imagine improving. And I came along and wanted to do things differently. And I explain in the book, at least in relation to mm. one of the individuals, that we just differed on issue after issue after issue. We tried to make it work. We worked together. This was somebody that I'd inherited. I hadn't appointed. But time and time again, I would say, I want to do X. And this person would say, no, Mr. Speaker, it's not done like that. Or, or alternatively, he would specify doing something. And I would say, oh, but I'll just do it this way. No, 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 no. It's not done like that, Mr. Speaker. And I would say, well, why not? Well, it's never been done that way. Or alternatively, in commending a particular approach to me, he would say to me, Mr. Speaker, it's always been done that way. And I would say, well, that may very well be. 
but it isn't holy writ. It's not a rule of the house. A very, very long-standing convention. And I would say, well, it may be a long-standing convention, but I want to do it differently. And my basic attitude, Dorian, and I say this to all of you in the studio and to your listeners, my basic attitude was reform, reform, reform. Reform where reform was necessary, desired, and overdue. Reform in the chamber to engender a more invigorating atmosphere and the proper deployment of parliamentary scrutiny of the executive, reform in the management of the parliamentary estate, making it more child-friendly, establishing an education centre as well as a nursery, ensuring the staff profile of the house at senior levels was more diverse, and reform in the use of Speaker's House to host, I think, a, an unprecedentedly large number of charitable events, but also a mindset of engagement with civil society. So that was what underpinned me wanting to chair and chairing, as I did every year for 10 years, the UK Youth Parliament and going to their conference every year and going to schools and universities and faith groups and voluntary organisations. Now, that was probably the least controversial of the reforms. But nevertheless, a very prominent official who worked with me had absolutely no interest whatsoever in joining me on any of those visits. His attitude was, no, he would stay at base camp, and it wasn't his style, as he put it. The fact that it was my style, and I was the elected speaker and had a mandate, just didn't weigh with him at all. I think he felt that it was my responsibility to adjust to him rather than the other way around, and I'm afraid I reject that. So I must just say to you, I completely reject the suggestion that I ever bullied anyone, anywhere, at any time. I totally reject and rebut those allegations, which are hurtful and, of course, are an attack on my character and probity, and I totally reject it. Some of the people who are gunning for me, and it's very obvious that it's an orchestrated effort, may be politically motivated, some of them are quite entitled people who frankly rather look down on me, look down on me now and look down on me then. And, you know, I have had quite a lot of that in the course of my life, rather sort of sniffy, uh, in some cases snobbish people who think they're superior. Well, I'm afraid I frankly don't have much track with that. Well, this is obviously in the context of, of, of being put forward for a peerage and if it if that does go ahead, and that is, by the way, the motivation. I right. mean, it's absolutely explicit. I mean, one of them has been, that's in a sense, helpfully explicit in saying that that's, that's why, why it's he come keeps up. No. popping up. He apparently attaches the most enormous weight to his own views and thinks that the nation should keenly attend to his every utterance. The person concerned has very little knowledge of the House of Commons and had very limited interaction with me. We had a couple of arguments, one in 2011 and the other in 2012. He wasn't uh, one of these people, wasn't an employee of the House of Commons, but he obviously thinks that his words are of very, very great weight and importance and, and must be repeated on innumerable occasions. And, you know, he, he appears in the media very regularly. He signed up to an agency getting him work in this field. And I'm Maybe not saying it's paid work. Uh, I'm not saying it's paid work. I don't know whether it's paid work or not. I'm making no allegation in that sense. But what I'm saying is he obviously thinks it terribly important that he takes to the public square. And he's been very explicit in saying, yes, he doesn't think I should be a member of the House of Lords. Well, we're extraordinarily grateful if, to him for his What would you do views, in the House of Lords? But he's not the arbiter of these matters. If you do get, if you do get the House of Lords, you obviously came as a speaker. You had a big priority list of priorities. If you're in the Lords, what would you want to do there? Now, the Move short the answer is, the if I were there, I would 
want to draw on my experience to talk about parliamentary themes and parliamentary reform and to champion causes that are dear to me. And one cause that is incredibly dear to me is the pursuit of greater social mobility and the adoption of an internationalist outlook in tackling uh, some of the problems that our country and the world face. I have no right. It is not a matter of entitlement. There are very respectable arguments for saying that the Speaker shouldn't automatically go to the House of Lords. But ordinarily, when there is an idea abroad of perhaps changing an established procedure, there would be some consideration of that. There might be a consideration by the Procedure Committee, a a report undertaken, and the House would consider it and so on. Let's be absolutely clear, that's not what has happened in this case. Indeed, until very recently, senior ministers gave me the impression that they fully intended that I should go to the House of Lords. What's happened here is that a group of people have come together and said, either for reasons Brexit-related or other reasons, let's block him that's what's happened well i'm sure that 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 your book will calm will calm your foes down (laughs) when when they read your warm testimonies (laughs) yes yes what are those pigs i see flying in front of my very eyes thank thank you john burko thank you Uh, now for the Burkola section of the show, as he said, step out. The government has started as it means to go on by immediately getting aggressive towards the EU about things that have already been agreed upon. Ian, uh, Johnson said there's no need for a trade deal to accept EU rules on competition, subsidies, the environment or anything similar. But the political declaration that both the e- UK and EU signed says almost exactly the opposite. Mm. Um, how sustainable is this truth manipulation well, I mean, it seemed to play for them all right during the election, didn't it? So I'm guessing they're thinking that they can just conduct themselves like this all the time. It's, you know, what the, the funny part about it is, is that it, while on a day in which he is accusing the EU of betraying a deal that he is himself betraying, because he's literally going against the text of what he'd signed, he is then also saying to them, you don't need to, to stick any rules on us don't worry i promise we'll maintain all the standards and just on like a basic human emotional level you just be like yeah but but do we mate because you're out there right now contradicting the words that are coming out of your mouth like their whole you know you've got to think about it from this whole level playing field stuff think about it from the eu's perspective right like they've obviously seen ireland basically sort of you know just slash its corporation taxes in order to get companies to invest there they're thinking they've just passed some extremely wide-ranging and very ambitious um, environmental legislation they'll be doing more of that in the years to come and they're just sat there thinking well if we we can't just keep on doing this if there's just this medium to large size economy just sat right here going don't worry don't worry businesses we're not going to do any of this stuff so you can still come and invest so they know it's a it's a question of trust in the future that's what it's all about so it makes it so strange that the method of communicating it was so patently hypocritical regardless of the content Ros, the UK's negotiating strategy at the moment seems to be avoiding services almost entirely despite the fact they make up almost 80% of the economy um, why is this? Well, I think the simple answer is that a slow bleed of uh, management consultants and financial uh, services people to various cities in Europe does not have the impact that driving a JCB through a wall of polystyrene blocks does. Um, <laughs> what does? <laughs> what does, exactly. 
And I think I, mean, the I have a dream speech doesn't have that kind of impact. <laughs> I think this is in, entirely, entirely cynical on the part of Johnson. He's allowing a kind of slowly bleed. I mean, basically, the important thing to know here is that um, the companies concerned, are, when they're bigger companies, are getting round it by setting up subsidiaries and, and setting up um, bases in other in European cities. I can't say other European cities anymore now, can I? Dublin, Frankfurt, Amsterdam, places like that. And so that is to enable them to continue to operate. And therefore, they're able to kind of um, slow down uh, the impact on their businesses. They're able to sort of moderate it a bit. And so there's no big punch like the punch that you get when a factory closes down uh, because of Brexit. They're dealing very well. They've got big plans in place, all these big companies, for basically spreading their business to minimise the risk. And that's why he's able to get away with this. Do you think that a large part of his agenda at the moment um, is really just how to spin this to the electorate? That almost that is a more of a priority than actually yeah. the negotiations. Yeah, it it's is. It's all creating a sort of narrative in which uh, anything that goes wrong is is just not his fault. Yeah, and also you've got to remember that there's no public sympathy or very little for people who earn high salaries in the City of London and are part of the services, mm. not all of it, but the bigger companies, which are the ones that get all the publicity, are do employ those people. The people who get sympathy are middle and lower earners working in factories, and so he's concentrating what you can say. I mean, he's being extremely reckless on every level, in my view, but he's not paying much heed to complaining from the city. Ian, on Monday, lobby journalists walked out of a briefing at Number 10 because certain publications were were barred from it. It seemed like a very uh, Trumpian move from Dom Cummings. Um, Obviously, when these things happened, we certainly saw it with Trump. It's the first time it happens. There's all lots of outrage. But then journalists tend not to stick together. A lot of them Mm -hmm. just think, well, we're kind of not going to throw away our access on a point of principle for these guys. Um, And then it sort of ends up becoming actually the norm. Do you have more faith uh, in the British media to sort of push back against such a sort of blatant strong arming? I I was quite impressed by what happened this week because I usually... I would happily go along with the analysis of no, I have very little confidence that people will be able to stick together, and they did. Um, there's also this thing of like, how often can you burn them? Like Cummings and his guys have burned a lot of journos a lot of times, really senior journos. We've seen it happen. Mm. He's been WhatsApping them. I think I'm not sure that they're all really aware as well that when the WhatsApps are coming in, that they're clearly being sent to multiple journalists mm. I think because they think it's this is my exclusive I better tweet it quickly mm. the same if you look at like do you remember the spectator when he got a deal do you remember he, he burned the spectator pretty hard they went I think they went with the front page of um, it's going to be no deal or whatever and it was like well no it turns out there it's like you keep on burning journos and after a while they're going to be like well even on my own selfish instinct I don't know how this is going to you'd pan out for me. I don't know if there's any point in taking this information from you. So far, I thought it, the week's gone pretty badly for them, right? Like, I mean, looking at yesterday, yesterday he comes out with this announcement on cars. Um, however, I mean, the six o'clock news was featuring him being basically doorstep by their um, their correspondent. Not sorry, not doorstep. But basically, as he, he refused to take any questions on the stage. He goes off and the clip that's shown of him is him running away from questioning when he gets off it. And you think, well, that isn't really helping you very much to do that. However, their plan is clearly basically that the media full stop doesn't matter. 
that it just doesn't matter. You don't need to cultivate these guys. And you can do most of the work on Facebook in two ways. Firstly, by doing his, oh, what shampoo do you use, Prime Minister? You know, how is it you managed to get your hair so lovely? Stuff on his People's PMQ thing. And secondly, by using the classic tactic of segmenting voter groups and speaking to them very precisely and very directly about what they want around election time. So it seems that the strategy is ultimately Facebook and fuck the media. I don't know how far that gets you. And it can't get him that far. Because, I mean, ultimately, sorry, I keep on banging on, but I mean, the Daily Mail had a fucking editorial today mm. talking about the freedom of the press attacking him on the day that, that presumably what they want from all these newspapers is for them to be assisting him in his attack on the BBC. So even in that front, that is not going as well for him as you would hope. So I do have marginally more hope than I would normally have on this subject. Mm. But, you know, it's still it's still pretty fragile. And for a former journalist, he's behaving in a very cavalier fashion. He knows you can't fuck the media. He know, he as, must a, as a journalist, he behaved in a rather cavalier fashion, <laughs> yeah, to be exactly. honest. No but, no, but you'd think he'd grasp how important the media was to him and will be again. And I don't think that ultimately he will be able to wrap up the British population oh. through Facebook in the way that he hopes to do. I do have a... a f- Sorry, it's just dangerous, by the way, to, to lie about what happened with the journalists. Mm. Like, the amount of outrage that came mostly from the, the message they put out after that yeah. event and saying they barged into number 10 and it was, you know, this kind of meeting and talking about an inner lobby, which doesn't exist. Was, was re- it seemed to me that there was more anger over that, the post-briefing of what happened, than there was over the original event. My yeah. fantasy is within a few months, some kind of like, you know, that Cummings overreach. It's just going to get worse and worse, and then there's going to be some colossal fuck up where he thinks he's cleverer than he is, and obviously he has achieved various cunning and terrible things. But there's just something about him that's almost like not quite Bannon because Johnson is not as uh, irascible and paranoid as Trump, but something where he just kind of really fucks it up. Yeah, he's losing a lot of shit right now. I mean, yeah. he's losing um, his war, which no one can explain to me what the fuck it's about with Sajid Javid. He's, he's losing plenty of internal battles. I haven't seen him. I mean, look, the big win is the general election. You, you can't fuck no. around with that. That's a black and white win. But since that, it's hard to put your finger on any of the internal battles that he's won. He, you know, it's not insane to suggest that he may not be long for this for this world. But wait till his geek squad arrives. <laughs> there are bu- there is bunch an outsider. There are a bunch of Black crazy brainy mavericks. <laughs> <laughs> Time for another round of our bracing new segment, To the Barricades. This is our new drive to spread good vibes in the Remainer sphere by giving you, the listener, one good and useful thing to do this week. Roz, what have you got for us? Well, can I undermine the whole spirit of to, uh, to the barricades by saying that I'm going to talk about judges, okay? And you might you might see a cognitive dissonance here, but let me let's tell you Let's all become judges! It. Yeah, no, 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 not let's become judges. So judges are, you know, often pompous tossers, but they're often also very misunderstood. And we don't, in Britain, understand very well the job that they do, and we don't uh, understand why they, why they do it and the importance of it to them. And this week... King's College London has launched what used to be called a MOOC, but that was such a rubbish name that no one calls it that anymore, which is basically an online course explaining how judges work and talking to them in lots of videos and lots of interviews and lots of stuff, which explains how the judicial system works. 
and it's run by a great guy called James Lee at King's College. And I highly recommend that you start taking this because I began it last night and it was really good. It's uh, okay. It's about three, four hours a week of your time, which is quite a lot of time for, I'm sure, lots of Romaniacs and it's a few weeks, but it will give you an insight into the judiciary that they haven't even tried to give you before, which is, to my mind, to my sad, geeky mind, quite exciting. Can we just look at the Wikipedia page for judges? No, you cannot. No, <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> to the homework barricades. Finally this week, how do we conduct ourselves now that Brexit has been done? And so has everyone else. There was unavoidable sadness remainers on Friday as the rights we enjoyed as Europeans and the rights of EU citizens who want to come here were taken away in an instant. And the evening wasn't helped by the sight of people in two world wars, one referendum t-shirts. It literally said referendum. <laughs> the challenge will now be to turn collective garment rending into something positive. Ros, here is the conundrum that we've watched Britain being presented on TV as a load of pretty angry and unpleasant people, sort of harassing journalists, singing football songs, etc. Um, but then also, if you criticise any of them, even people who say referendum, um, then that's just elitist sneering. Um, so as, as sort of any criticism of, I don't mean that your average kind of leave voter who's not like super engaged and just felt like they wanted their life to get better or, you know, mm. they wanted to kick out the, the, the powers that be. But the, even even the kind of the hardcore, you're not allowed to, to sort of mock because then that's just middle class sneering. And that's exactly why you lost to quote the tweet that I see about every single day, anytime. Look, Remainers, this is why you lost. <laughs> because you don't like racists who can't spell. So think Paging about that. Matthew Goodwin. Yeah. Um, so is it sort of... Um, is, is it just kind of you can't win? Um, no, you can't, because basically all this is a massive amount of provocation. I was in Parliament Square on Friday. I went along because I wanted to... I felt I needed to see the sight, the spectacle that was on offer. And it was one extraordinary bloody spectacle. So there were there were bikers for Brexit who were lined up with placards and had their big bikes all lined up. There were a ton of evangelical Christians who'd kind of, not just one group, but loads of different ones, who'd kind of jumped on the bandwagon and were promising harder and harder and harder, more biblical Brexit. And, <laughs> Four horsemen of no deal. Yeah. And there was a there was a World War Two sort of era. one of them's called Laurie Cues. <laughs> there was a World War Two era pickup truck which was driving around Parliament Square with a with one of those white plastic garden pieces of garden furniture in the back with no one sitting in it and loads of little fluttering Union Jacks on the back of it. And everybody was there. It was all completely performative. They were all there to be on TV and to basically say the most extreme things they could possibly say just to get on the wick of the Remainers. And that was exactly why they were there. And in many cases, they succeeded. But you've got to remember, this is not the vast majority of the British population. There may be a culture war, you know, being stoked. There is a culture war being stoked. But all this was just for the cameras and it was the most extraordinary amount of acting. Ian, for a very long time, when a second referendum was uh, a possibility, um, a lot of people we were sort of told to, to hold our tongues. It's like, don't mock the people that you might have to um, persuade. I mean, not that it sounds like the people Ros are describing were ever <laughs> that persuadable, but it was always like, you know, hold back, hold back, don't criticise, you know, leave us. Um, now, 
I mean, is there anything? Oh, I love this. The <laughs> game's up, right? <laughs> Fuck it. We'll like, just, we'll it's, just let loose. Like, is there, a, is there anything to lose? Because the whole point, <laughs> the whole point about culture wars is that they don't stop because the other side just goes, I'm just going to not say anything. I'm just going to ignore them and they'll go away. No, they won't go away because then they'll just be fucking, like, angry about Doctor Who or something. It's like you can't, <laughs> if you ignore they don't go away. So what I'm saying is, is, can we just, can we make fun? Is it okay to make fun of people in referendum t-shirts? <laughs> I just can't, I think that it's, but isn't it elitist to say, well, I'm not going to point out that spelling is wrong or that you've just said that a court is here when a court is there or that you're unable to spell. Like if anyone in any situation, if you go, why do you want X to happen? And someone can't tell you why, then obviously you're going to have that discussion. I mean, basically to say that you can't address that is like saying that some people literally are incapable of any reason or logic whatsoever. So that seems to me to be the elitist thing. You go and you have arguments with anyone that actually gave a fuck about the public and that actually gave a shit about people's lives would say, well, politics is about the fucking arguments. That's what you do. You have the argument. So I just, I mean, it seems to me a complete reverse elitism. And then, of course, it also accepts the narrative framing. And we all do this, right? I mean, because we mock ourselves as, like, there probably not a single episode of this has passed without one of us mocking one of the other ones, being, basically saying, like, oh, really, a flat white, and did you have it in Hampstead? You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. We play into it. But obviously, it's not correct. Like, it is simply not true the way that the vote played in this country or or even the way that the vote played in the US where exactly the same mm, narrative mm. of elites versus the real people plays. And when we do it, when we sign up to it, what we're doing is we're helping that old, old, old nationalist idea, like from Mussolini, no, from before Mussolini of the people. We represent the people in mm. the nation and you guys are these subversive, elitist, international money, you know, swapping conspirators who want to destroy you know the the people of the country so all of that is fucking horseshit you have the discussion and of course if you don't have the discussion if you play into this stuff and allow it to be this thing that i'm not allowed to say what have they succeeded in doing all they've succeeded in doing is convincing you that the best way you can advance your cause is by not saying anything at all they have completely fucking neutered you so yeah say what you want say the fucking but that's where i find like like the you know the sort of the the tone policing or the kind of all don't talk about in this way is dishonest because essentially Essentially, the idea is that you can't say anything at all. So, for example, I remember if you used to go, oh, um, Leave voters, many Leave voters don't really know what they were voting for. And you go, how dare you? They know people are very intelligent and they know exactly what they're voting for. And then when you can literally prove, because they're talking to the BBC and just going, oh, I don't know. Um, and then you just go, well, these people don't know. It goes, oh, don't mock them for not knowing. They're very busy. Mm-hmm. And it was like, but you just said that I wasn't allowed to say that they didn't know. So so when you basically when you've gone through like a couple of cycles like that in the, in the media, you know, which for, I think we all probably knew this back in 2016, um, you just realise that actually there is no, you can say this, but you can't say that. Here is the line. It's really like you cannot say anything. You cannot make any criticism because whatever you say and however you say it, and this is why there's I'm so little, you know, why a lot of the counterfactuals, what Remain should have done, really gets on my nerves because I remember for a long time people were going, don't bloody have your European flags, don't have all this kind of like over-emotional kind of stuff because that puts people off. And then you'd have people going, well, you can't just concentrate on the dry economic facts of the things. You have to talk about the emotional connection with the EU. And so essentially what it was just going is everything you do is wrong. Exactly. And now that, you know, 31st of January has passed, I'm just like, 
I don't care anymore. But have you ever, I mean, have you ever had a, imagine having that conversation with someone in a pub. Imagine that you're having a disagreement with them on any fucking subject on earth and that you then think, no, you're a member of the real people. I have somehow been magicked out of human existence, mm. you know, and, and don't have a, so I cannot now respond to you. Just like how fucking Patrick, it's like treating them like children. The idea, like, I can't imagine anything that should be more offensive to someone than for someone. It's basically like, you know, go, like having a running competition with a five-year-old child and letting them win. It's like, no, fuck that. People are grown up. No, no, They're but I mean, you should you have the fucking... But with a child, you should do that. <laughs> sure. Yeah, like if you're playing football... I'm not suggesting no, but it is like treating a child, you know, when you're playing football with them and you just like let them score loads of goals. Mm. Yeah, no, you're right. It's just like, no, they are... To respect someone, you have to respect their right to be fucking wrong idiots. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like politics is made up of people with different opinions who will hopefully argue it through until one of them is, you know, found to be correct. Like, that's the whole system of the whole thing. So, I mean, it, it you know what it feels like for us right now? It feels like the way that the anti-immigration guys used to say it was for them before Brexit. Oh, you can't even raise your legitimate concerns about immigration right now. They'll call mm. you a racist. Us is like, I can't even raise my legitimate concerns so about Brexit. Brexit or they'll call me an elitist. <laughs> We've reached the end of the show. The Brexit time capsule has now been buried for Remainer scavengers to dig up in the centuries to come. A marvel at this halcyon age. If you've got an idea for new segments to help bat away the Brexit demons, send us your thoughts at info@romaniacs.com because we're all out of ideas, Buster. <laughs> <laughs> we're very tired. You can also email us with foreign language clips. A Brexit day, a racist poster went up in a tower block in Norwich explaining that because we're taking back control, only the Queen's English should be spoken here from now on. <laughs> Every week on Romaniacs, conversely, we like to remind you that we'll always be an island full of diverse voices, and that's more important than ever. Put that on a sign in a tower block in Norwich. This week's clip is in Danish from listener Jesper Bergetoft. Till we see again, og tak for alle fiskene. And that means, and this is becoming a bit of a theme, so long and thanks for all the fish. And that's the show. Thanks to Ian and Roz and our special guest John Burko. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. If you're after an extra slice of the Romaniacs pie, don't forget our new politics podcast, The Bunker. Now it's time for our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thank you to some of our latest Patreon backers. This week's a bit different. Special greetings to the following supporters of Romaniacs. Mr. Simon Whale, <laughs> Mr. Richard Stevens, Ms. Anwita Woodhull. Ms. Vanessa Rowlands, Mr. Tom Brown, Mr. David Martin, Mr. Colin Scott, Mr. Andy Green, Ms. Melissa Johnson, Mr. Andrew Jackson, Mr. Declan Monaghan, and last but not least, Mr. Nick Perry. Hello, hello. Yes, my name is Ian Dunton. I'm thanking you very much to Holly Larson, Jack Jefferson, Gabriel, Eric Stone, Jan, Gordon Robertson, Lindsay Maiden, Neil Wilson and Simon Wyndham. Hello from me to Pierre Peterson, Meet, Joseph Erber, Christopher Thornton, Dave Lowney, Bo Roberts, Michael Schabler, Christian Cable, Paul Allen, Chris Betterton, Joshua Train and Alex Jones. Not that Alex Jones. Finally, and thanks from me to Craig Bowles, Peter White, Francesca Bretel, Rowan Dobbins, Ryan Bateman, Scott Edwards, Harriet Caster, Sean C. O'Brien, Susan Brazier, Colin Hazelden Bryce, 
Rachel Wadsworth, Roger Wood and Reed Duthie. Romaniacs was produced and presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt and Ross Taylor. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is the Podmasters production. 